The Fantasy Animation Podcast is brought to you by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. If you like what you hear and want to give us a star rating, then you can do so by visiting Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or you can follow us on Podbean. Whatever you choose, give us a rating and watch us fly up the rankings. For now, enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome back to the Fantasy Animation Podcast for another week. Uh, I'm Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holliday. And we are joined this week by Steve Henderson, who um, is a Senior Lecturer of Animation at the Manchester School of Art, but uh, he's also the co-owner, co-host and editor of the Squiggly Online Magazine and Podcast. Um, And uh, we're going to talk today about uh, the Disney feature Aladdin in time for the remake um, that's coming out in theatres shortly when this podcast uh, launches. So Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, we're talking about Aladdin, the, um, the the original Disney feature, and it was it was nice to sort of revisit it and, and watch it for this episode because it's been a while since I'd seen it. Although having started watching it, I realised that I remembered every <laughs> scene of it, sort of back to back, sort of in, implanted within my brain. I think is this your first? So this, Aladdin was the first one I saw at the cinema. Um, so it, it sort of central, I guess, to my formative. Uh, well, certainly my formative experience of animation, but ultimately explains a lot of what was to follow, I guess. Um, so yeah, the first film come, yeah. came out in, in 1992. First film I saw at the cinema, um, and ultimately I think has ingrained into me something. It, it's as you said, it's, it's a film that I, I forget that I know it so well, and then it comes on, and then yeah. you're, you're doing the lines, and you're saying, and you're singing the songs, and you're sitting cross-legged as if you're on a magic carpet, <laughs> for example. He's um, referencing what I'm doing right now, yes. everybody. Um, um, so I guess, uh, Steve, what, what's your experience, memories? I think when we when we talked a little bit off air, you said it was nice to revisit it. So did it feel? Was it something that you'd seen recently? Is it something that, um, like us, that you forget that you know so well? What where are you kind of coming to? I'm with you on the forgetting that you know it so well. <laughs> I think what Disney do really well is they they imprint these fantastic images in your in your mind that, that last. And whether you might pretend to be like a you know a grumpy old fart who doesn't like you know cartoons or you know how many how many sort of you know dads or uncles have said that to you, they will they'll instantly be transported back. I'm sure uh, to to the fantastic imagery of the film yeah i remembered it beat for beat watching it again you know i've not watched it in years and as as you as you said everything just came flooding back and what came flooding back as well wasn't just the film but all the sort of memories of watching the film as a child mm. and all that fantastic experience of of going to the cinema and, uh, and, yeah. and enjoying that kind of what felt like a privilege as a child going to the cinema and, and enjoying that time out with the family and, mm. and things it's just wonderful yeah absolutely um and and i, and I think it, it presents uh, something of a challenge i think as as for this podcast in that i think i want to do justice to that pleasure and talk about it and i don't think i'm i'm going to be too grumpy about aladdin but i think there are also some things to say about it in terms of its racial politics and all this sort of stuff that did strike me perhaps even more presently this time although i've read quite a lot of scholarship that sort of use this film to talk about sort of the mm. problematic history of, of race representation within yeah. Disney yeah. more broadly. Um, so so it's, it's, it's about sort of, I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts, about, you know, these treasured childhood memories, how you take a step back from it and have some sort of measured objective response, if you can ever have objective responses to art, which you can't. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing to think one's way through. I think from my perspective... Um, I I thought a lot about um, the, the sort of the depiction of Agrabah 
uh, and what Agrabah is in the film because it's sort of very interesting in terms of fantasy because it's this sort of um, f- you know this free floating generic world of fantasy isn't it in a way it may as well be called Middle Earth or Oz or something like that except it's got this sort of Arabian Nights-esque iconography and is obviously drawing from certain um, folk tales and things from 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 the sort of Persian folklore story but the problematic nature of sort of creating this Agrabah that's not Baghdad even though the original tale is set in Baghdad stripping it away from that and whether that allows you to just enjoy it as a fantasy which you kind of want to do whilst at the same time stripping it of all its sort of heritage and white casting the voices and all this kind of stuff and it did present an interesting thing that I thought through a lot about uh, what about you Chris yeah um, so I mean I, I guess I'm coming to the to the film um, of course as a, as a Disney movie and, and we talked about this on previous podcasts as a film that's central to the so-called Disney Renaissance in the late 80s and, and the early 90s um, I'm interested in how it connects up with I guess the American kind of political uh, American political moment in the 90s mm-hmm. early 90s um, so the Gulf War I'm interested in Orientalism um, and the fact that Agrabah is in no way almost an anagram of Baghdad thankfully um, but also, I guess, the broader question of how we use and what we do with animation that, that takes something like this as its subject matter and how um, maybe we as uh, academics, uh, scholars can talk about or use animation to talk about bigger ideas. Isn't it really interesting and exciting that we can use something like Aladdin that is, quote unquote, a uh, Disney musical a fantasy and how um, why it's important maybe that we, we can use yeah. these films as exemplars to talk about um, kind of racial um, politics. I'm also interested in the genie because who isn't? Um, and we might get into a discussion discussion about kind of star voices I think because yeah. Alex hit me with the bombshell before we started recording that he doesn't quite buy into the star voice thing so we can talk about that thanks for outing my uh, yeah. rant against quite quite a perceived <laughs> academic uh, discourse so star voices and um, stardom and, and, and um, Robin Williams's role in the evolution of, of um, casting star voices and perhaps at the expense of trained if we like voice artists um, and then ultimately I guess visual effects how the film itself is is an effect because it's animation but um, contains effects. Can animated films contain visual effects? And 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 so I yeah, we can talk a little bit about the the rise of the Cave of Wonders out of the sand, mm. uh, and perhaps most famously the Magic Carpet Ride. Um, but yeah, I guess beat by beat, we should start with sure. the first beat. Sure. So so the film yeah, I mean the film opens I think as it means to go along with this kind of uh, we get the sort of smoke trail of of a, of a lamp going mm. up and and the Arabian Nights music and. And I it sort of struck me. It's a it's a very metamorphic film. It's very interested in in changeability, and and the genie obviously exemplifies this. But it's a lot of the film is about sort of using spaces in a strange way, flying around, going up the balcony rather than up the stairs, and all this kind of stuff. Um, to me, to me, the film struck me from those opening titles is 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 a film interested in I guess what we would might call in Disney sort of scholarship, is it plasmaticness? This yes. sort of notion that you know changeability, and 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 then we go straight in with that with the sort of oral storyteller that is the genie in itself, right? Yeah. Well, no, well I, I forgot all about the the beginning. I forgot ah, about the, the prologue, smoke. yeah. I remember the prologue, but I, I forgot about the smoke at the beginning, yeah. the, 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 the smoke. And the first thing that struck me, and I, I don't know what this says about me, <laughs> uh, was how kind of seductive it was. Because mm. the way that the music, the, the, the drum beats hit, and the way that it looks like, you know, somebody dancing. Yeah. yeah. And I found that very kind of, really evocative of that kind of, set the scene perfectly and then obviously you go through to the peddler who is you know Robin Williams playing uh, this smart aleck uh, salesman which uh, obviously the Disney fans will know was originally intended to be the genie uh, and they they, they were originally going to end the film with the genie 
revealed as the peddler because uh, if you look at the character he's, he's only got four fingers for example right, right. every every everyone else has that kind of you know classic five five fingers yeah. uh, humanoid appearance and it is robin robin williams doing the voice which is the obvious giveaway uh, yeah. obvious giveaway <laughs> um but then obviously they decided to end with this kind of whole new world reprise as as uh, uh, as the perfect ending for the film yeah really uh, so you get this kind of little comedy bit at the beginning, which serves to set up the film, but was also intended to be kind of a big reveal I, at the end. I didn't know that, but I've got written in my notes: "Is the peddler the genie?" Question. There you mark, go. Because well, I, cer- I certainly thought that because there's he sort of it's he, like the genie, isn't he? He's sort of showmanship, and he keeps pulling things out. That where did you get all that from? You know, all that kind of stuff. So absolutely, okay. That's really but the other thing I think is that the genie himself as a character, and we'll talk a bit. I guess the genie will go on to, to, uh, to talk about the genie as a character, but he's one of the most reflexive characters in. Has his reference points are pop culture, of course, and and that kind of co- contemporaneous humour that is in, is embedded into him as a character. So he he tran- uh, kind of transfigures into Jack Nicholson and all, all kinds of you know. Yeah. There's a there's a I'm sure someone has written a list of all the people he turns into online. Yeah. I'm sure that exists somewhere. Um, equally. The the peddler is the own one of the only characters who is equally as reflexive, mm. talking to the camera, and in fact the camera come come closer and then the camera hits him. So it's it's yes he's a he's a storyteller, but it's also signalling to us that it's a film because there's a camera and his face gets squashed up against the screen, and so we we we, we know we're watching a a, a film, yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. that's a really interesting because I guess a cell animation hasn't to my mind, it doesn't often do those kinds of jokes. Perhaps nowadays it does, and, and, and certainly computer animated feature films play with the, um, uh, the presence of a virtual camera, and you have stuff kind of thrown against the screen and trickled down the glass and all this. Um, for me, that's a really interesting and, and reflexive moment two minutes into a film um, that is ostensibly a, what, a musical fantasy or a fairy tale in some time, mm. a, a tale, certainly. We're being told a story. We're being well, told a story, yeah. but suddenly the camera hits you, uh, and I think that's an interesting moment of, Ah, so it's, we're the audience here again. It's, it's both tale and, and, and film. And we've talked about on the podcast when we've done other Disney movies, this, this recurring thing of the sort of storybook open, that all these Disney films, well, not all of them, but a lot of them, certainly the ones that sort of are the heralded as the classics, start with this moment of storytelling, right back to Snow White with the book opening. But you're, well, I hadn't thought about it. You're quite right. This one has a sort of inversion of that in that we don't have a book but we have someone telling their story to camera and the yeah. camera is invoked all this yeah. sort of stuff. It's a talking head. Does that say anything about, I don't know, a shift from one kind of Disney, you know, this is this is Aladdin, so this is the third in the so-called Disney renaissance, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, roughly. What Disney's trying to do a bit differently, but at the same time calling back to its heritage, things like that. Um, I don't know, but it's an interesting thing. Yeah, so we get the peddler introducing the story, setting the things up, and then we go straight to uh, the Cave of Wonders and Jafar... Uh, the introduction of Jafar and Iago uh, trying to search for the lamp, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think the, uh, the point you made about the seduction, so is this something that continues into the film itself? Mm. Uh, and Because obviously um, there are moments of seduction, but obviously, we'll, and we'll talk about Orientalism, but this idea that the Orient or the, the, um, the, the Far East is that sort of unknowable, untamable, mysterious, erotic, e- exotic place. Um and ultimately, we're we're going there, and I'm wondering whether the opening we're being told the story, and then we cut to the cave of wonders in the middle of the desert, and we've got um, what we've learned to be the villain and the and the, um, and the, the talking parrot, Iago. Um, whether there's something still unknowable, are we? Is the film serving a kind of archaeological function where we go in, and or an ethnographic function where we go in and we're studying this kind of mysterious? I'm, I'm wondering at what point the seduction is seduction something that the film continues through that opening. Um, yeah, I mean, and I don't know what your what your thoughts on that. Whether 
the, sedu- the, the, the smoke at the start is this seductive um, moment that invites us into a world that is mysterious and we're being told this story that is a tale and ultimately I guess may or may not be true that's part of the pleasure of something like a tale or might have changed over time is the yeah. way that folk tales go I think if you look at other Disney beginnings as well uh, the, the the one that I remember from my childhood that is you know vividly ingrained on my brain is the beginning of The Lion King it's uh-huh. like nature's telling this story yeah, here's yeah. the sun here's this this silhouette nature is telling this story and here you've got we're being told a story verbally whereas with the with Snow White and with uh, Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella and the ones that open up with the book we're being told a very western story you know through the you know, yeah. method of a story storybook you know and so perhaps yes perhaps we've been told a more a more adult story is that is that fair to say because because we're not being read a story like a child yeah I mean, I've heard you on your on your podcast on the Squiggly Podcast talk about adult animation and that as an idea and, and what I mean. I've never really thought of um, of, of Aladdin as an as an adult animation in the way that I guess you know there are other figures we might bring into that conversation. Bakshi, Ralph Bakshi, figures like this. Um, but that's an interesting idea that we that the way that it rejects or plays with the the way that Disney traditionally tells stories is itself a marker of the film is going to do something different i never really thought about the film's difference i think when we think about the film in relation to something like the disney renaissance we think of these block of films that do things in a particular way um but i like the idea that the film is doing something different through that through that in that smoke we're going back to that smoke again that that kind of you're being seduced by and then i guess there's something around the way the film constantly refers to ideas of seduction hypnosis um the way that Jasmine can use her body to seduce Jafar playfully, ultimately, and that that sets in motion the climax of the film. Yeah. So seduction will be something that ties in with um, that kind of core periphery model of us versus them, Western, the East, the Far East, is this mm. mysterious place. Um, seduction of power for for Jafar. Yeah. Seduction of uh, it, there's, there's, it's a it's a running theme, isn't it, throughout throughout the film? It, it's something that. Yeah, very seductive. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm trepidatious about joining in on here because I just think I'm going to start talking about Princess Jasmine a little bit too much. Because I say I saw this in a slightly formative age of my of my life, and I think I think the imprint of Princess Jasmine on my psychosexual sort of dynamics is probably something we probably shouldn't get into uh, right here on the podcast. Um, but, uh, it's, it's but it is an Design. interesting odd discourse that's sort of there but not there. Um, and and is de- and and just the sort of design of Jasmine and all this kind of stuff. We talked earlier when we did um, Notre- the Hunchback of Notre Dame with Esmeralda, but mm. that the the figure of Princess Jasmine as a Disney princess is very different. To even I guess Ariel is sexualized to some respect, but right back to sort of the Snow Whites and the Cinderellas, there's something very different about the way Jasmine is presented. I think seductive and exoticized are two words that would jump to mind. <laughs> Rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think well. Uh, it comes from that that place in in history. You can't tell the same stories in the nineteen nineties as you were told in the nineteen thirties, forties, fifties, because society had changed, yeah, rather rather rapidly, um, and you have this completely different treatment of uh, or expectation for a for a female in a film, especially from the uh, from the point of view of Disney as well. Disney. There's a there's a fantastic book called Disney War by uh, James Stewart I don't, James B Stewart I don't know if anyone if you've if you've read it if you've not if anyone listening it's my go to oh, right. Disney uh, revelation book <laughs> um, in fact 
it's an academic podcast. I brought books with me. Of course. He's brought props. Uh, He's uh, brought yeah, props. Let, 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 so there's going to be a little break now. We're all going to read a book. <laughs> uh, but here's, this is... this is. Uh, never had a, a literal citation on yeah, the podcast yeah. before. Yeah, d- well, don't worry, I won't, cite, <laughs> I won't cite the book. But um, it is an absolute uh, superstar. So it's, it's Disney War, uh, The Battle for the Magic Kingdom. Uh-huh. What it does is it charts the, uh, the turbulent era that these films were produced in. And you have Michael Eisner coming into Disney, shaking things up. You have Jeffrey Katzenberg taking over the animation side of things, at war constantly with Roy Disney yeah. uh, to produce uh, what they saw as better and better films. But you also have uh, Disney relying on uh, musical theatre and, yeah. uh, and and you have a, dif- a different point of view of what, what a heroine should be, yeah. what, a, what a hero should be. You can't have... Although it's the era that the I Want song came into yep. play, the, the famous I Want song, um, it's it, it, which which is Ariel's uh, main main thing. And interesting, it? Jasmine doesn't get one. No. Um, and also interesting, Jafar doesn't get a villain song either. No, that's true. Which yeah. is which that's so, usually a, he doesn't get his he doesn't get his be prepared and and his yeah. his, his scar be prepared moment. He he doesn't. Um, yeah, she does. She doesn't get an "I want" song, no. Jasmine. But I guess a whole new world is an odd sort of recalibration of that. In that, that is what she wants, isn't it? Like that's, yes. But 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 unfortunately, well, unfortunately, it, it's recalibrated in that the Aladdin is giving her, uh, and it becomes a duet that I'm living yeah. in this whole new world. I can show you the world, shining, shimmering, splendid. Tell me, princess, now when did you? Let your heart decide I can open your eyes Take you wonder by wonder Over sideways and under On a magic carpet ride A whole new world Yes, thank you Alex and or Chris for that insightful comment. Hey, it could have been someone else. It could have been someone else. We do have lots of <laughs> it guests. It usually is. It usually is, um, certainly when it comes to insightful yeah. comments. Um, hi everyone, we'd like to pause a little bit uh, and talk to you about how you might contribute to the Fantasy Animation website. If you are uh, somebody who is working within the fields of fantasy and animation, if you're working across both of those subject areas, you're working in one and would like to think about how you might connect it up to the other, do get in touch. Yes, our blog posts run weekly. They're read um, by a, a, a huge audience across um, the globe um, we have a quick turnaround on them so we're basically very different to all academic publications which are notoriously slow these days so if you want something out there that's quick if you want something out there that gets your profile raised a little bit if you're an early career researcher or if you want to try out an idea and see in a slightly more sort of informal environment of a blog post um, they can be about 1,000 to 2,000 words usually um, and can just try something out and get a conversation started we're seeing the website very much as, as an early career space so if you'd like a quick turnaround as Alex said um, some initial feedback on an idea. We and you know those important publications on your CVs. Yeah, yeah. So we want we've to all been there. We have all been there. We're still there. Um, so if there's an idea that you'd like to, to try out um, to get disseminated amongst a community of like-minded um, people, um, then do get in touch. We've got some good reader numbers. We're we're interested in in all forms. I think of fantasy and animation. So if you'd like an idea of the kind of thing that we publish, visit fantasy-animation.org. Click on the blog tab. Uh, scroll down. You can look at current posts, and you can also trawl back a little bit further, looking through the archive. Have a little bit of a search and see whether anything jumps out at you. But for now, you can get back to us talking about whatever it is we're talking about.
It's yeah. a, whole, a whole new world for Aladdin as well. Yes, that's you know, true. Yes, he's he's been uh, trapped in this cycle of poverty, of course, and she's trapped in this yeah. cycle of wealth. That, that's the line, isn't it? They, 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 when they meet in the marketplace, they both use the I'm word just trapped, so trapped. Yeah. at the same time, and that's the moment they get this connection. Yeah, okay, interesting. Well, actually, thinking about our previous podcast on Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, I, I think it's Quasimodo who gets the the I want song because he's the and so that marks an interesting I, I think Disney's one of those one of, and if we think of the Disney formula which we all know doesn't really exist um, but this idea of a set of, of it's like a you know a chessboard where you have the same it's the same game each time but the moves are going to be different and ultimately I feel like as we move through the 90s Disney start to figure out the core components maybe of what a Disney film looks like and then plays and reallocates those kinds of I guess tropes or archetypes to different characters, or so the I want song is something that migrates from characters. It's actually not just the preserve of the female princess, mm -hmm. though we might think that's the case. Um, it gets moved over to a figure like Quasimodo or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I like the idea that there's lots of that, that within a Disney movie, there's lots of things kind of they play out, but they're always in play. They're always perhaps migrating and moving between characters, and and we we know we feel like we know what a Disney formula is, but we we know what it is often in its absence or in its changeability rather than any form of fixity. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just sat here agreeing. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess it's like a game of chess, isn't it? Like yeah. you, you don't you don't see the the rules in play. You only ever see them when like a move is made that is innovative or changing and things yeah. like that you know you can only you only you only learn the rules by seeing it being used in a dynamic and innovative way so there's something about that i think with with jasmine and sort of the you know um, as a reaction to sort of 70s 80s feminism it's a it's a 90s heroine it's a classic mm. watching it in 2019 which is you know give any film 20 years of history and it'll probably come out poorly because of it in terms of <laughs> identity politics but there is a of classic of all you know give and take problem going on there though obviously isn't it which is that Jasmine is in some ways more spirited, she has more agency, she has more decisions, uh, she's more confident, she's more independent, all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, at the same time, uh, arguably sidelined in the narrative to Aladdin at the port, she is a port, you know, she is, a, in terms of her narrative stakes, a prize to be won, yeah. uh, despite the fact that she keeps saying she isn't. Um, <laughs> and there's this weird, exotic seductive tone to the whole thing which is you know if, if we take the original tale which is very much a tale told within the culture in which it is taking place mm -hmm. you know um, this is a story about the place that we all live in but with an added sort of magical realist element here this is very much a story for white western people to enjoy and exoticize and be seduced by its its orientalness isn't it and jasmine is as jasmine is an exotic quotation mark beauty for us to enjoy okay so um, how so okay so I, I, i'm pulling in a few of these things if we've got the formulaic nature of, of of disney or however we qualify that term the seductiveness of it i'm just trying to think how is the film how else is the film innovative or seductive so we have the when you have the opening kind of cave of wonder sequence where jafar or, or the other that aladdin is identified potentially as this diamond in the rough or we are now the film is on the lookout as jafar is for this diamond in the rough who can go into the cave of wonders and seek out its treasures um the film then kind of cuts i guess between it sets up the two characters so you have aladdin is this um kind of uh, street urchin figure who um uh, as you say, is trapped in these cycles of poverty. Um, counterpointed with Jasmine, got to eat to live, got to got to steal to eat. You know, the, yeah. the, the, there's there's uh, there's those lines in the song yeah. that kind of set up the personality perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And that, I suppose when you talk about Disney innovations as well, I think the the introduction of um, as Howard Ashman and, and Alan Menken oh, yeah. to 
to produce those songs that that serve as a beat to tell the story this this musical uh, theater influence that came mm. into disney and they really started to make these incredible uh innovations with with the songs uh to 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 almost rush through the story but still to kind of fill you up with all this incredible knowledge about the characters when yeah. the genie turns up and sings friend like me you see every side of him and it's just an absolute feast of of visual everything yeah. <laughs> I don't know I'm, yeah. trying, I'm struggling right. to explain it because the, the, it's a, they're on the, the Menken and, and Ashman, Ashman and Menken yeah. are on fire like this is like I couldn't help that was the one thing that impressed me more than anything else was just Every single musical set piece mm. in the movie is is both visually dazzling. The music is terrific. Yeah, it's like they're all these seductive numbers. There are, are there any quiets? I mean, I guess a whole new world is a bit quieter, but even that is tearing through the world. You know, um, at the same time, there's not quiet moments. Everything is kind of you know toe tapping, uh, put on a show. Um, you know, uh, curtain calling um, music numbers here, and, yeah. and, and it is seductive. It's I mean the, the Prince Ali one when I was like, oh my god, I completely went in. I remember all of this, but it's working its spell just as powerfully on me. Here we go again. With well, so these, we're, you know. so we're back to this idea of seduction then. That, 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 and they're seduced by Ali, aren't they, in that moment? Like, yeah. You know, well, but all well, it takes well, is that musical number and everyone thinks he's, you know, the Sultan's convinced that he should marry uh, his daughter yeah. or this sort of stuff. The only one yeah. that I guess isn't is Jasmine, but is yeah. very quickly seduced. Well, and Jafar, I suppose, one. a little bit. Jafar, you must come and see this. Like, he, like, so the, the he kind of, tries to close the door uh, on them. Yeah. Literally, he's, he's, he's stood there. No, I think that's right. The the the, the uh, and also like the way that we're sort of moving between the film and this sort of um, bombastic way to like the, the genie's multiple personalities and and like when this idea that the the film itself has these bombastic musical numbers that are certainly not uh, shrinking violet numbers. They they are they are moments of display. But I think the the point about um, Menken and Ashman and 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 one thing I that I haven't done that I'd love to do is think about the. Um, the the Renaissance from an industrial perspective, of course, oh, but mm-hmm. this idea that the Renaissance itself played out through a set of maybe formal conventions, but it also played out through an industrial set of conventions with the stability of certain directors and Clements and Musker and 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 that kind of industrial stability that has as much to say about the Renaissance as as the way that these films look. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps yeah, we're talking about the innovations, but there was also uh, elements of of caution, I suppose, in in the making of this film. You could you could suppose in the making of this film, this is the first Disney film or the first animated film rather to uh, employ big voice actors. Robin Williams was this this big deal, um, and and until that point, we had professional voice artists who could do the voice and also sing. Mm. The voice of Jasmine and the the person singing for for Jasmine and Aladdin. In a, a whole new world, which is their only song, singing, yeah. are different actors, mm-hmm. and so maybe that is the reason that we don't get so much singing. Maybe that's the reason we don't get an "I Want" song. Maybe yeah. that's the re- you know. Th- I know there was a, a an Aladdin song earlier on in the film, uh, Aladdin when Aladdin's mother played 
uh, a, a big a big deal in the film, which I think I've not seen the Broadway show, but I think it's in the Broadway show. Aladdin right. has a mother. But it's something it's, that Katzenberg cut out. Is that right? Yeah. He kind of cut yes. it out when he reworked the film. The, the yeah. DVD has some stuff on this, and I think they've got the song on there. Like proud sets, of your boy. Yeah, that's yeah, it, yeah. proud of your boy. Yeah. Yes, it is in the set, stage sets show. and yeah. sets to um, sort of the original storyboard art and things like that. Mm. It's, it's worth a watch. Well, yeah. the original story, uh, Aladdin was closely modelled on Michael J. Fox. Okay. So he was a lot sort of younger. He was a bit more kind of mm. you know teenage, yeah. uh, early teens maybe, uh, mid teens, and then uh, the mod- they modelled the character on Tom Cruise. Yeah, and so he becomes this late teen, uh, a bit more independent, a bit more sort of a, a guy he could imagine becoming a prince. It's not a boy becoming a man. It's a, it's a man becoming a different man. You know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. So, um, although the there are all these things that we can view from our point of view as as innovations, I'm sure some of them have been have come about through the uh, through cautious industrial uh, uh, processes. Yeah. Well, I think that that sort of tells a different. Obviously, Disney is a different, and we we've talked about this on previous podcasts where Disney is this interesting and complex and quite chaotic object of study. And what how, what's the right way to talk about it? And and ultimately, you end up rehearsing a lot of the industry discourse because Disney have told us the way that we should be talking about their movies. Mm. It tells us what the the kind of formula is because it perpetuates it through kind of multimedia. And actually, obviously, Aladdin is is a film, but it is also part of a trilogy of films. Mm. I mean, perhaps we won't talk about the other two. Mm. Um, but you can look at look them up. And I, don't, I don't mind them actually. I, I haven't seen them in I reckon fifteen years, but I remember yeah. liking them quite a lot when I was younger. But that's some interesting stuff in in play in those movies about Star Voice and Robin Williams not licensing his voice. I didn't want to come back for the second one and then ultimately coming back for the third film um, after an apology. After an apology, yeah. um, which is interesting because I think he's. Uh, and now he sadly passed away there's something about how and, and maybe speaks to a broader issue about intellectual property and how stars can be used after and their image can be used after that and in case in the case of Rob Williams his uh, kind of vocal track anything with his likeness anything with his voice um, kind of can't be used again but uh, Disney is this interesting thing where we try and talk about it and figure out the right way to talk about it and, and, and how we should be talking about it and are we talking about it in the way that the studio themselves have positioned themselves very carefully um, but I, and, the, and the role of the star voices obviously plays into that as a, as a quality perhaps uh, of the of the renaissance as you said that that um, Robin Williams was was a figure who kind of kicks off this trend in the 90s of, of, of star voices. But then we were talking off air about, okay, so what about Oliver and Company that has Bette Midler and Billy Joel? And this is four years later. Um, but, but even things like um, Ed Wynn in, as the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. That is a that character is modelled around Ed Wynn's comic persona on television. Like So it's uh, not... King Louis. Yeah, King looked absolutely yeah, the same thing. Yeah. So it's an interesting. I, I, I sort of it's it's both true and not true. This Robin Williams thing, I think, because I think it is obviously true that there's something different about the way they're using Robin Williams with the with the genie that is worth mm. highlighting. But yeah. it, it is also drawing on things they've been doing for decades and decades and decades, isn't it? So it's that interesting thing where it's perhaps a, an exaggeration or an intensification of certain techniques. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the, the early Disney films were made. Uh, the early Disney animated features were made uh, purely as animated features. There were no, there was no outside influences. And then all of a sudden, when the Disney uh, Renaissance came along, nineteen eighty four, Michael Eisner took over the company, and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg gets involved. And these are people that had very little to do with animation beforehand. They're they're film uh, live action film yeah, yeah. Uh, producers, and so they know the power of a star, and they would see that. 
these films can be made with stars and they can be marketed with stars. There's this uh, fantastic moment in uh, it, which is detailed in, in Disney War where the Disney animators uh, had been toiling over the Black Cauldron for years. One of Alex's favourites. I love it. Yeah. 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 Careful, careful what you say. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, I really like the Black Cauldron, but yes, do. Well, you, this may be the reason you do like it. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I'm sure there's other reasons, but... Um, the Black Cauldron, they've been toiling over this film for years, throwing money at it. They thought that they'd purchased these books thinking that these this is the next big thing, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware. Mm. And uh, it was quite a it was quite a flabby film in terms of what was what was there. Jeffrey Katzenberg came in and said, Where's your, how are we gonna edit this thing? And Jeffrey Katzenberg had no idea how animation works, and then the animators tried to tell explain to him, well, these things are quite detailed, storyboard, they've been storyboarded, we've spent a lot of money on every scene. We can't really edit these this this story because this is how animation works. It's 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 pre-edited. And Jeffrey Katzenberg basically he sat down, I imagine sitting down in front of a steam steam deck and said, This is how you edit a film and started cutting. And that was one of the major, major sort of moments in Disney animation is that Jeffrey Katzenberg comes on board and starts treating these animated films like live action films and you have the influence of Broadway you have the influence of, of the films that Disney started to make obviously uh, the touchstone pictures mm -hmm. had to be created just solely so they could distribute Pretty Woman because Walt Disney is not a name that you put in front of a yeah. film about yeah. a prostitute yeah. so they created touchstone pictures that also gave them the license to do Who Framed Roger Rabbit you know which is a little bit more uh, adult even though it's got animated uh, 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 components in it yeah and so you have this this huge influence of, of Eisner of Katzenberg of Wells um, uh, Frank Wells coming in and really shaking up Disney's process and producing animated films in a way they'd never been produced before and obviously Katzenberg would take that forward with the help of uh, Steven Spielberg to DreamWorks yeah uh, and animation kind of changed forever in the 1990s, so it's not a renaissance as such. It's not a case of them mm. bringing something that existed in the past to what was then the present. Yeah, it's a case of animation changing. Yeah, on a fundamental level. But it's but it's interesting that that that, that discourse coexists with with something closer it's interesting that that would then be called a renaissance yeah. critically i guess or, well, or kind of the historian me goes well that's very much like the original renaissance which yeah. actually is also not a not a return but a, a change a, of, new, yeah. a, a new inspired by old but but doing something very yeah. fundamentally but i think yeah. that the disney's positioning of the renaissance is, is something that we're now we're now back on track i.e we're doing something that we've done before um and our identity has really always been these fairy tales right yeah, uh, and there's something kind of, and, and I know that Alex is is um, is chomping at the proverbial bit, but um, there is something interesting I think about the way that the Renaissance was positioned as something to to remind us that I don't know Disney had been doing a set of things that it had apparently forgotten and was doing and was doing again, and, and thank goodness they were doing. We it. found the magic. It was behind the sofa. Yeah. We, yeah. we 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 managed to get it out. We're making films exactly how we made films before. Yeah. You know, you're going to love these films. Yeah. You loved watching them as a kid. You're going to love taking your kids to yeah. them. It's, it's it's actually a qualitative statement, isn't it? It's mm. not it's not we're doing it's not even we're doing the film. It's we're back Disney, the magic, and whatever on earth yeah. these things mean. 
it's, it's an ideological thing. We're, we're making good films again, is actually what they're saying, right? Yeah. Um, which I think is why I have a problem with the term, because I actually think some of the stuff they make in the 70s and 80s that's now dismissed within this history as their dark ages is really great and interesting. And, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, um, of Black Cauldron and things like this. Um, and I also think it just, you know, I also think it sort of doesn't quite tell the sort of odds collection of influences going on here so just back on the, the filmic thing so riffing what you're saying about eisner like what this this film is also drawing from is the legacy of of arabian nights fantasies mm. um which is something um a coin well it's a term used a lot but david butler sort of defines it very nicely in his book on fantasy cinema which is you know right back to sort of you know the um uh, pow- uh, the Thief of Baghdad, the, right back to the sort of Douglas Fairbanks silent version, um, all the way through. Sort of, there's a remake of it in the 40s. There's um, A Thousand and One Nights, and it's these sort of campy, exotic, told for Western stories of a magical uh, Arabian world. Mm. And and this is linking back even to sort of what we're talking about part of your boy and the reason it was cut. I believe maybe I've misremembered the reason it was. Or maybe it was changed was because the reason the Aladdin character was changed so fundamentally is they realised that would not this character of the sort of plucky teenage boy would not fit with the Jasmine character and it mm. wouldn't be a credible match. And I just think it's very interesting that you know in, in a way it's good that they had so much attention on the female character. But it's interesting that you've got two choices. Then you either change the character of Jasmine, who let's be honest is the secondary character in this film, or you change the primary character who is the driving force of all of it. And just in terms of labour, the easiest thing to do is to make Jasmine younger in that scenario. So it makes me think, why didn't they do that? And the reason they don't do that is because the Jasmine character needs to be this exoticised beauty for it to work as an Arabian Nights fantasy, because that's what you get in those movies. You get the Carolyn Munros, uh, you get the, you know, the sex pots to, let's be honest, put on some fake tan and put on a harem outfit. And that's what you've got in Jasmine. And it's so ingrained within the genre that they don't even think we could just make Jasmine younger and less sexualized, and then we wouldn't have to change the Aladdin character. She's also getting married as well. So I suppose, yes, I suppose there's was, that too. If yes. she was like 12, that might call into question some of the morals in the film, I suppose. Yes, <laughs> yes. Although I suspect more in keeping with the original story because, you know, that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah but it's not a story that Disney would, would, would want, want to tell, tell is it? No. Yeah. Um, Certainly not, 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 not No, no, no. But that's, no, you're right. Yeah. All these things are yeah. going into it. So it's this merger yeah. of Disney morality with the original tale, with a filmic legacy mm. um, that, that Eisner and Katzenberg would have been very familiar with. And, and all this stuff is sort of playing into the, the DNA of the movie. Um, but it makes me think that the. the that the Disney formula is is always something that seems to hamstring uh, hamstring the the films because your point, Steve, about the, the not the film that we would want to tell. Well, well, says who? Well, says Disney, of course, as, as dictated by um, a formula that, as we well, I, if you have, go back to Disney history, you have Snow White, and then you know you have the kind of Snow White's and the Bambi's and stuff. But hey, there's that film Fantasia that's absolutely bonkers and in no way follows the formula. In fact, reviews at the time say. This is a rejection of the formula, right? So after two movies, the formula disappeared. So why is it still this durable thing that we always go back to when it's often there? Yeah, it's always there in its absence or it's often there as as something that it's being stretched and moved and reshaped. Well, maybe it's kind of just not there at all then. Mm. And that's always and and it feels like the way that you kind of you're that you're talking about um, trying to to place that that Disney square peg into that round hole all the time to try and to try and make it. This is what a Disney film looks like. But also, that's not what 
Disney are really. Do- I know there's something quite interesting. Yeah. There's something quite interesting going on. That's always bothered me a little bit about the the Disney formula because it's just that in and of itself is an interesting thing to look at. It, it it's. I've not I've not come across any papers on this or not only because I've not looked at it, but this is the thought I'm going on. It, it kind of goes back to that the Disney tradition of almost uh, colonialising mm-hmm. uh, cultures. Yeah, and you you see that Disney believes they have the license to do to do such a thing. You see that in. Um, Many Disney films, they've taken, uh, and you can quite easily place where the Disney films are set, even though something like uh, Snow White is just seen as a princess film. If you look at it, it's like, well, it's obviously Germany, Bavaria, that kind of that kind of area, uh, through, through, through its design, through its, uh, yeah. uh, it, 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 its kind of uh, traditions played in there, uh, and obviously playing on the, the Brothers Grimm and, 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 and that kind of uh, era. Um, so I, I believe that, that they, it, it, it is kind of, Harking back to that Disney tradition of, of taking a, a culture, and then and then Disneyfying it, mm. uh, you know, it, it, which is viewed by many people as 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 a, as a criminal offence. It's yeah. interesting yeah. that Disneyfy is this pejorative term when mm. there's kind of no not necessarily a reason for that. It could just be a coming together of a studio that audiences know and love and a formula that people are familiar with with something that's pre-existing and that should be a really interesting en- moment of energy and, 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 and creativity but it's often as you say seen as this kind of criminal act except what they tend what they tend to do is they tend to justify it within this rhetoric of fantasy right so what what, what they do is they strip a folkloric story from its national origins and then they wrap it around this sort of Disney fantasy land. So I mean, mm-hmm. you were just telling us you're, you've just built your honeymoon to Disney World right and, and, fan- and, and fantasy land is this land and it's yeah. a Bavarian snow alpine yeah. village, except it's fantasy land. It's not a Bavarian, you know, it's, it's stripped from its Germanic origins. And the same thing happens here. Rather than this being set in Baghdad or, or any, any Asian capital, it's set in this Agrabah, this, this Disney world that, that it's okay because it's just a land of fantasy, so therefore has no stakes, so it doesn't matter. When of course it has stakes. You've 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 taken a story out of its culture mm. um, and turned its culture into a generic kind of template for the imagination. Um, it, it's packaged. It's it, yeah. It's palatable. It's it's for the whole family. It's you know it, it, it's stereotyped. Is that is that yeah. is that safe to say? You know yeah. it, it, it's it, it it's made to be consumed. It's not made to be. Uh, mass consumed it's, it, 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 it's made to be mass consumed it's not made to be consumed by a, a, a somebody who would have a, a, a detailed understanding of the original uh, text yeah. the original source material in any of Disney's uh, films you know when, when you how do you how do you trans, translate something uh, as, as as odd as um, Alice in Wonderland it, it has to be you know Disney have created what they would probably put forward as the definitive version but you know it, mm-hmm. it it's it's quite a mad text you know? yeah yeah and again it's because it's because the it, the text makes sense if you place it in the context of sort of victorian culture but yeah. if you remove it from that you have to do something very um very different to it so that's uh that's yeah that's all well, i've got lots of things like, i'm drawing on what you're what you're saying and and this idea of then that, that gets me thinking about kind of pattern patterns of representation that the film is and we've talked i mean we've about 40 minutes into the podcast and we're, yeah, we're we haven't even got to the cave of we're, wonders well, I was gonna say, we're, we're five minutes in. That, <laughs> yeah. that's smoke eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's something i mean what for, so for me i think what's interesting that bringing bringing these two things together the side of the disney formula um and actually the kind of point about the the kind of colonialization of of 
pre-existing kind of canonical texts, I guess, or cultures, or whatever, whatever we're, we're kind of saying. Um, Aladdin did attract a lot of critical attention, precisely around this sort of Orientalist. Um, and there's an interesting, there's an interesting um, uh, quote from uh, Leslie Felprin, who's written a chapter called "The Thief of Buena Vista: Disney's Aladdin and Orientalism." And it begins with, "We begin with a true story, but one so dense with stories within its stories." So I think we're going back to the kind of the telling, mm-hmm. if you like, so loud with conflicting versions of the truth that it seems to have guarded the narrational generative capacities of myth. So the film, I think it's it's Orientalist discourse, the way it perhaps has this Orientalist lens of this is what the the East looks like. Um, when we talk of Orientalism, Edward Said's, um, mm-hmm. I guess, key text on Orientalism that has been central to colonialist and post-colonialist discourse. Um, the way in which the film is steeped in the Orientalist imaginary, um, what that means for the way we then read and interpret and in, enjoy the film, and 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 so I think, and, and this kind of gets me back to the point I made at the, the beginning: is isn't it, isn't it great and, and wonderful that we can use Aladdin like that and in this way and use it as this ideological space to talk about? the Gulf War and the kinds of images, presumably the kinds of images that were American audiences were receiving uh-huh. at the time, 1991, that are then just continued in this in this um, Disney feature film. And so there's something about kind of patterns of representation. But um, So we're at the Cave of Wonders, <laughs> five minutes in. Um, no, I, I think there's something kind of interesting about the... the we kind of can't really do a film beat... Uh, can't really go through the film beat by beat, but seem to take it in this broad sense of... Well, certainly as we've done it, we've taken it in this broad sense of what the film does in terms of its, um, yeah, its representations, its pa- uh, patterns of representation, the way um, it is presenting a Western view of the of the East and how yeah. problematic that is in the way that Agrabah is presented. Well, well dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, it's put forward as a as a dangerous place. Yes. Yeah. yeah absolutely. The, the, the idea that you're not you're not able to to go into the cave of wonders unless you're this one person. Yeah. Which which sets up the hero narrative and everything, but this one person is being chased by people with swords. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and in fact, doesn't Jasmine get, almost get her hand cut off at, at, at one point? And uh, well, right at the very beginning. Uh, there was controversy around the original lyrics of, of the Arabian Nights song, which uh, I think it says something about cutting off your ear. If they don't like your face, it's barbaric, but, but, hey, but it's here's home. home. Yeah. And that was changed to about how barbaric the weather is, you know, how, how the sun's shining down and all, all, all that kind of stuff. The desert's dry. I can't remember, yeah, I can't yeah, remember yeah, the exact yeah. lyric. Um, I don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. But it, it, it's, um, it's painting this kind of dangerous picture and the the guy who who uh, retrieves half of the scarab beetle that opens the cave of wonders for Jafar at the beginning, yep. he says, "I had to slit through a few throats to get it." So we've been wow. presented in this kind of uh, this barbaric place, and I'm sure if you pair that up with the images that people would have the, the kind of cult- the consciousness of, of yeah. American audiences, perhaps at the I, time, I, I hadn't thought about that actually. Yeah, the the. And I like the fact we are still about five minutes into the film. Yeah. But that I wonder whether then that, that framing of, of Agrabah is this dangerous place um, where throats are slit to get half of a scarab kind of beetle thing, um, where uh, if you steal an apple, you might lose your hand. There's something we're, we're sort of... Is that is that simply kind of narrative jeopardy? I.e., we when Jasmine wants to escape the confines of the palace wall, or what, what's is it just to kind of frame... Um, outside and inside as two separate spaces so a place of safety a place of and yet we get a figure like aladdin who knows how to work the system outside he knows he knows the shortcuts and the ins and outs yeah, yeah i mean the only thing about aladdin is that with the character design is that 
everyone else in Agrabah has a sort of very grotesque, yeah. exaggerated Persian, whatever the hell that is, uh, facial design, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Aladdin looks like Tom Cruise. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's also that issue, right, which is that he doesn't, he doesn't look quote-unquote barbaric from the instance to a western audience because he seems to be basically everyone else everyone else lives in agrabah and he basically seems to have a tan uh it seems to be the, you know. <laughs> the, the heroes are very western yeah the heroes are incredibly western the, the, the main the Sultan, characters right is well, know, father uh, christmas yeah, um, yeah. yeah i mean at one point i think the only the only uh instance where you get any type of nod at religion obviously the Palace is designed in a in in, in a very kind of uh, you, you know you could apply religion to the to the design of of, yeah. of the the look the, the palace and everything. But I think there's one point where, where the, the the Sultan says, um, you know, Allah forbid you have any yeah. daughters, and that's the only kind of mention of religion. And for the rest of the time, they're talking about marriage and uh, and and, and this thing very we- it's very Western. It's incredibly Western. Yeah. And the, the whole New World sequence is like, basically, it's, oh, yeah. you know, you can go, I mean, there's the funny sort of ridiculous plot hole thing, which is, sorry, how fast is this magic carpet? Because it seems to be able to go to around Egypt. the world in, well, in one night. But then there's that. It, but, but the more broader thing is just like, oh, we'll go to the pyramids and we'll go to, you know, Athens and we'll go to Baghdad. And we'll go over. Yeah, yeah, and they're all the same. And, you know, yeah. you know and that's all going to look, and it's all places we can look at and enjoy sort of on holiday. And we'll do one great big holiday of the world and then we're done you know it's it's an it's a small world kind of experience <laughs> isn't it you know but it's interesting um, actually the way uh, that got me thinking of the first time that the, the uh, Aladdin encounters the genie and then they Aladdin tricks him uh, I know we've jumped ahead a little bit in the plot but I, we've we, the plot went a long time ago yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, very Disney um, yeah. so uh, well, the way that the, the genie first kind of frames the, the magic carpet he, he adopts the persona of a, uh, a stewardess an airline stewardess and says the yeah. exes are here, here, here and it does feel like that sort of <laughs> that touristic gaze it's not lost on the genie that the genie is this is your we can get to places and this is really interesting and, and then and then as you said the whole new world sequence plays that out in a less comedic and what I guess more dangerous and more insidious way, like these places are. Yeah, we're just kind of kind of going to visit the Middle East now, and this yeah, is what and happens. Asia and yeah, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know she's gone. They're gone for four weeks. Yes. And they've cut a scene where the Sultan's gone. Where have you been? I was worried. Um, <laughs> one ring. Just give me yeah. two rings. Let me know you're safe. Um, so yeah. So I mean, we're not going to kind of join on the part. I mean, well, then, the only thing I would say, we, we yeah. the film, I said at the beginning, it'd be hard to, to balance the obvious pleasure that we get from the film from the negatives, and I feel like we might have gone the other way and focused all on the negatives. Yeah. So is there what's what's what still remains great about the movie, and what would I mean? We've said that like, the music, the music's great. Um, for me, the comedy stood out, and yes, actually, oddly, yeah. not the comedy I thought it was going to. I did like the genie, but at the same time, the sort of constant Jack Nicholson quotes and things. I did think, okay, I'm not quite sure this has stood the test of time. I loved Abu, um, and and uh, and particularly Abu as elephant, uh, and I mm. loved Jafar, um, yeah. and thought he was hilarious this time around. And and actually, a lot of the sun, the, the magic carpet is great. All yeah. that, all the silent stuff is obviously because it's silent comedy. It's less verbal. It's less entrenched within sort of contemporary discourse. I thought all of that still stood the test of time and was terrific. What what struck me, if we can go back to right to the very beginning of this podcast and start again. No. We barely started. But, That's um, your first wish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this, this uh, the, the fact that watching the film again, I remember, well, I remember watching Disney films as a kid and thinking that they last forever. 
Now you okay. watch them again as an adult, and there's not an ounce of fat no. on them. They're so uh, well presented. Every idea is so perfectly put together, and there's no, there's nothing that needs trimming. And I, and I thought I'd come back to it, given what's happened since Aladdin with animated films and the the role of the star in the animated film. I thought I'd come back to it, and I thought that the genie would be a bit more than. Because obviously during the years he's played up bigger and bigger in my head. I've yeah. seen the merchandise, I've seen you know all that kind of stuff. Um, but I've gone back to it, and he's quite not underused, but they're almost subtle with him. He's not front and center. He's only front and center when he needs to be. He's not the minions. Mm. They don't cut away to him at any given opportunity to do a a bit. You know, he's only there to serve purpose or function or to to add light. Comic relief. That's really interesting, though, because I hadn't thought about that. That he's always in. He he appears when the lamp is rubbed. It's not like a cutaway. I think there's only one bit where he's playing chess with the the carpet, which I loved. But that's (laughs) like the only. You're absolutely right. He's the film structurally plays out his role as servant, which makes the ending of the film, I guess, much more impactful because the shackles are off and he gets to he gets to do his bits in a way that the film perhaps formally or or has organised his role in the film to be very much responsive and reactive to, to something that someone has wished for. Uh, sorry, kid, I've got a new master now. Like that kind of stuff. The film plays that out structurally. He is, he is the master of other characters. Um, but I think you're right, yeah. I think retrospectively, you, you, or you think that the, the film is going to amp, amp him up and, and have him front and centre. But yeah, you're absolutely right that he's not, he's not in there for cheap laughs. He's mm. there for kind of pathos as much as anything else. Genie, I wish for your freedom. One bona fide prince pedigree coming up. Ah, what? Genie. You're free. <laughs> I'm free. I'm free. Quick, quick. Wish for something outrageous. Say, I, I want the Nile. Wish for the Nile. Try that. Uh, I wish for the Nile. No way! <laughs> oh, does that feel good? But what happened to films after Aladdin? What happened to films... Um, what happened to all films all after film, Aladdin? Every single film after yeah. Aladdin, uh, it, it, animated films af- after Aladdin at least, is that they, the success of, of that character, the success of that film, really created a, a precedent, a formula, a, a way that people would go forward with the idea of having a big movie star in the film and, uh, uh, or, or you know, a big comedian. Mm-hmm. To, they really put, they really lent on that. Yeah, but it's interesting. It is interesting, but one of the studio, one of the shoes that didn't do that was Disney, because you have Atlantean, then you have The Lion King, yeah, and then you have Pocahontas, mm. and then you have Hunchback of Notre Dame. And we talked about the gargoyles in Hunchback and how we didn't need them to be in it. And yeah, like, and they're not in it very much and all that stuff. Yeah, you're right. That's interesting. But you're right with the DreamWorks sort of the kung fu pandas of this world, right? That is, you know, that is a well, that would not exist without Aladdin. Right? Yeah, yeah, obviously Katzenberg is a big a big mm. part of that. You know, he's, yeah. he, he knows. You know, this. You know. But genie made the money. Let's let's make more genie films. Let's yeah. you know in in that in that ilk yeah. or, or, or exaggerate that at least. So we've talked a bit about um, the musical aspect, the Disney formula, 
um, a little bit about the kind of, I guess, the goal for the American political context that surrounds it, um, how we can maybe use this uh, a film like Aladdin to talk about kind of racial politics. I have one, I guess, one note on um, special effects, sure. um, which might actually lead this into the remake, mm. I guess, as a, as a thing. Um, so, and I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but uh, Michelle Pearson's book, Still in Search of Wonder, which is about special effects in the 90s, talks about can animated films have special effects? If an, if an animated film is an effect, can we have visual effects? And actually, I think the industry tells us a little bit about this. Um, the eligibility, perhaps, of animated films to, in the visual effects category. Um, you have visual effects artists, and, and what, what those visual effects are. Are they the elements? Fire, water, whatever. Um, I think in the case of the Disney movies, um, this is obviously a cell-animated CG hybrid, You know, this, if hybrid's the right word. Um, the, the film uses cell-animated back, backdrops and characters, but then has these moments, these amazing kind of bombastic moments that that are play out through the visual effects of the digital technology the cave of wonders as it appears from the sand the magic carpet ride um, when he escapes from the cave of wonders when he escapes which is great that's which a fantastic yeah. that yeah. is that but that's sort of like a first person sim ride yeah. simulation yes somewhere in the world that must be a ride yeah, yeah, yeah. that must be a ride must a kind of first person um but that's a really great uh, exhibition of and so i so i think that that Animated films, yeah, in this instance, can have visual effects and they can be digital. There's, uh, there's kind of something about the way in which digital effects are being integrated into Disney animation. We should we can look at early 90s Disney animation to see how how and where emergent computer graphics are being positioned and what sequences they're being they're being used for. Because I can't I'm trying to think of the other ones in the in the film that that use that, um, but they're only those two kind of jump to mind. Well, actually, the analogy struck me, and perhaps this is because I've both watched Aladdin and listened to a few of your podcasts this week, Steve, was, was, was the Leica Studio, what they're doing with stop motion these days, which is this blend of stop motion with CGI to sort of intensify, exaggerate, mm -hmm. um, make more possible. I would argue Aladdin's doing something similar with Cell versus CGI. CGI is... It's always around and it's there and it's used to sort of exaggerate certain it's the, moments. It's the smoke. And I think it is like a hybrid. I think I think hybrids are right. I think this we've talked about sort of like you know we talked about sequence in Mary Poppins and everyone calls that a hybrid. But the whole pleasure of that is that you know that they the, aren't integrated. That we know the penguins aren't there and it's that's the fun of it. But actually here I think you are supposed to see the two as integrated and and as as. Perhaps, therefore, special effects within a world, but part of the same mm. world, and all that kind of stuff. So, on the topic of special effects, um, remakes. Now, Steve, on the on the Squiggly podcast, um, you've talked about, I guess, the uh, political ideological stakes of the re the Disney remake and what huh. this what this mean. And 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 um, as we record this, Dumbo yes, this should be this should be out the week Aladdin comes out or soon yeah, after. If we time this right, yeah. this, if if not, we apologise. Um, <laughs> they all die. No. Um, <laughs> But there's something around. Obviously, the Dumbo, the Dumbo remake hasn't done very well, and and commercially and critically, right? yeah, ironically, has has sunk like a a, a flying elephant. <laughs> um, and so, I just wonder what your thoughts were on on. I guess perhaps the idea of the remakes, the Disney remakes in general. Like, mm. what's what's that? What's that kind of saying? Is this a sort of bankrupt um, uh, moment of ideas, or is it is it great? Of course, they're. This is another kind of renaissance. So I just, yeah, I just wonder what your thoughts were on, on. Um, we obviously haven't seen the Aladdin remake. We've seen the trailers. We've seen Will Smith blueing up. Um, but what, yeah, what are your thoughts on the, the kind of, I guess, the politics, if you like, with a small p of, of the, the, the Disney remakes. I think, I think to to answer that, you need to look at the way that Disney is as a company at the moment and how Disney seems to, appears to be a company that is less inclined to take risks. 
for the last few years, you look at the way that the Disney company has purchased its way to prominence in terms of the, the cinema. Disney has, there, there are certain films that where Disney has had an attempt at producing something that would equal another film. So you remember uh, John, uh, John Carter of Mars. Yeah. Clearly Disney wanted their own Star Wars franchise. That film didn't succeed, mm -hmm. and so Disney bought Lucasfilm. Right. Disney, uh, that's just the way that I, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, so no, Disney I have, have, have tried uh, in the past to produce their own superheroes as well. I'm not talking about the Incredibles and Pixar, I'm talking about things like Sky High, and you know, that's just one example that, that immediately pops ahead, and there, there are better examples. Yeah, so they buy Marvel, uh, to in order to because it's it's going to work, it, yeah, know, absolutely. Um, and so Disney appears to be buying all of these, these things because they're safe box office. Uh, winners yeah and so what Disney are doing with their live action remakes it's not like when they made 101 Dalmatians back in the 90s was it early mm -hmm. 2000s with Glenn Close yeah. oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, which was perhaps the first uh, foray into this kind of interesting remake yeah, thing. I forgot about that um, and it's and it had been done as well uh, with, with with others um, what they're doing is, uh, is is different to that is they're going directly to those films that were successful and they're they're remaking it because they're playing on unfortunately they're playing on nostalgia, and they're playing on the fact that it is safe. If if you have kids, you might go. Oh, I remember Aladdin when I was a kid. Here we are sat talking for ages about Aladdin. And if 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 we had kids, I'm sure we'd take our kids to see the new Aladdin film because we know the Aladdin film. We know what happens in the Aladdin film, so we know it's going to be safe for yeah. children, uh, and we know we're going to enjoy ourselves. We know Will Smith is. We know he's a great actor. We know Guy Ritchie is. Uh, hopefully, it's not going to be too much like uh, Snatch, you know. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I can't love it if it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we we know that it's going to be. It's a safe bet. It's a very safe bet. But I suppose, I guess, also because we know it so well, is there is then the risk higher because it is a safe bet. But at the same time, we know and love the original Aladdin. We spent you know fifty minutes to an hour talking about it um, to some extent, yeah. <laughs> but. Does that put more pressure on a remake to be... I mean, they're obviously different beasts, mm -hmm. but does that put more pressure on the film to... Okay, it needs to think, do I replicate and remake faithfully? Do I take the bits? I don't know. I feel like there's a... It's a, It's also a risky move, if, if, if economically profitable in the long run. Well, it's a, ris it's a risky move, right, but it's also a... Uh, politically, it's also in... Uh, the, there have been articles written on, on Cartoon Brew... Uh, another another uh, site about the fact that the original writers of these stories have not been credited in uh, for the for the Aladdin remake for the you know the Dumbo yeah. remake and what this what Disney did uh, originally was they they would take a story like uh, you know, like Snow White or like you know um, Cinderella and instead of at the end of uh, the original Cinderella where the ugly sisters get their eyes pecked out and have to dance on hot coals until they die or am I mixing my my fairy tales up here my uh, I think that's uh, that, uh, yes maybe there's one of them is with the shoes and they yeah hot coals and yeah there yeah, yeah. Now, now Disney didn't do that Disney obviously had a, a, a much more um, sanitized ending so the Disney films become their own their own films really they they are it's called Cinderella but that is now the Western ideal of Disney Cinderella, Cinderella. Yeah. Disney Cinderella yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's okay. not it, absolutely uh, it, it's not the Cinderella that that would have been read to our great grandparents. 
And what Disney are doing is they're just remaking that version of Cinderella. Mm -hmm. They're not making a Cinderella film. They're not going back to the original source material and going, well, hang on, let's get their eyes pecked out. You know, really. Yeah. They, they, I, I think there was some, a certain aspect of that in, in some versions. I think Into the Woods, I think they did a little bit of that. Um, but uh, what they're doing in, with these remakes, and which I think is, is, is morally dubious, is that they're not crediting the original uh, people that worked on the writing of these films or the creation of the characters. You know, Will Smith wouldn't be playing this genie character were it not for the work of Eric Goldberg, the, the original animator, the animators that worked alongside him, and obviously Robin Williams. He'd be playing a very different genie. I mean, what, what role does the genie play in the original story? Is he this showman? Well, yeah, no, not really. And actually, he's a much more sort of mischievous sort of, um, you know, you can't trust him so much mm. kind of character. So, yeah, absolutely. So that's an interesting because who do you because part of it is crediting the script writers and the story, uh, you know, the, the, the people that came that made the changes to the story. But you're quite right. The other thing that I hadn't think I'd thought about until this moment is people who did the character design and people mm. who did because all of these is obviously, you know, I've seen the trailer to this thing. It is it is riffing on on all this visual legacy as much as it is sort of narrative legacy so that's a that's an interesting thing but i do wonder safe bet give it to the end of the year let's see how safe this bet is because yeah i you know i think i can understand the parents i can understand how beauty and the beast was such a success because it's one one time in a year it's easter holidays let's take everyone to see beauty and the beast fine but you're asking them to do that three times this year you know dumbo aladdin the lion king how many people are that interested in spending their summer re-watching old Disney movies told through this sort of slightly bizarre live-action version? And, and I'll, I'll be interested to see... what I think Dumbo was the most risky, because as much as we remember Dumbo, we don't. a lot of people, I think, aren't that familiar with the film as well. Yeah, as Dumbo's, what, an hour and ten minutes, an hour and twenty minutes, yeah. something oh, yeah. like that, and then the Tim Burton version yeah. is three days long, something like yeah, that. Something like that. Yeah, All these extra characters yeah. that's been put, that have been put in the film and uh, all these extra narrative points. Um, Maybe this is the first in a Disney universe, a crossover well, Disney, yeah. Disney Earth only. Um, the Disney shared universe. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, yeah. Kingdom Hearts the movie. Yeah. Yeah. DCU. I'd watch that. Um, <laughs> but um, um, but uh, it's interesting, it's um, they are called the Disney live action yeah. live action versus versions of the animated films, but there's no way that the new Lion King coming out is not an animated film. No, yeah. of course not. I mean, the Jungle Book was the most ridiculous version of this, wasn't it? Because mm. the Jungle Book, apart from the boy actor who played Mowgli, everything was digital. Like the, the sets were digital. And then the new or the most the most recent version of that, the circus. Mowgli, is it King of the Jungle? The Mowgli film that was on Netflix. Yeah, which obviously uses motion capture. And so, yeah, I mean, this, the Disney remakes opens up broader questions that, that we can't answer here about the relationship between live action and animation, of course. But. Very briefly, what would, what would it take for the new Aladdin to be good? Well, obviously the world has been crying <laughs> and out. And worth existing. You yeah, know. well, the world's been crying out for a, an Aladdin movie directed by Guy Ritchie anyway. Yeah, sure. So, luckily, we've got one. I, I think I think for me, it would have to just be very different. And, and unfortunately, from what I see from the trailer, it isn't different. It's it's doing that Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast thing. I, I actually thought The Jungle Book was, was kind of one of the better ones because I actually thought the best bits of that movie was how different it was. And then mm. the, the most annoying bits were when it started to 
for some reason Christopher Walken sings the King Louis song and all this kind of stuff for no apparent reason. So the yeah. more they're not like, the more that I would, I'm very happy to watch a new version of Aladdin because you can tell that story in a very very different way, and I'd be and I'd be happy to watch that. But unfortunately, you're right; it seems to be. Let's let's basically do the same, but slightly different. Um, from from personal point of view, I was quite happy just rewatching Aladdin. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, uh, for, let's do that. that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. About the parent con, like you know, why am I going to spend forty quid once a month over the summer mm. to go see Aladdin and the Lion King mm -hmm. when both those trailers have had some slightly actually the Lion King one did all right. Like, people seem to be quite positively receiving of that one, didn't they? The trailer that basically yeah. reenacted the survival. But the Aladdin one certainly did not go down well. And, you know, why would I go watch a Blue Will Smith when I can just put this on for my kids and I, all I've got to do is buy a bag of crisps um, and put it on for them? And yeah. that, and I... And you don't I, even have to buy the crisps. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But if you do, if you do, that's half the price you're going to have to do at the city. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, it's not... Even as a as a pure commercial exchange, I don't I don't necessarily I I don't necessarily see this panning out for them. I yeah, I, I I think there's a there's a lot of backlash um, in terms of the the CGI uh, Will Smith mm -hmm. in, in the trailer, and I, I think I mentioned on the on the Squiggly uh, podcast the fact that these trailers and the visual effects are not a finished thing; they're quite kind of rushed out. You can imagine the VFX crew being told trailers coming out on Monday and them going, "What? We're, we've been we've been working on." On the the monkey fur, well, we've not been doing the genie yet. You know, we're building yeah. our way up to that. But you want Will Smith's genie yeah. in the film? Okay, right, okay. And then they have to rush together this uh, the, the, for the for the trailer. So when we see the finished film, it, it will be completely different to yeah. what we've seen in the trailer, and, and people will go back and look at. It. And you see that in things like the Avengers trailers and any film trailer that's got a special effects moment in it. You'll watch the the finished film. And things will change. Well, the Sonic and the Hedgehog being the recent good, uh, good after, after yeah. Sonic Gate. Uh, that was a, that was in, that was interesting yeah. as well. And I'm sure I'm sure that this podcast will do Sonic the Hedgehog a movie when it comes out. Uh, <laughs> why, would you, why would you put that pressure on us? <laughs> <laughs> um, if I've got any um, will in the world, we will uh, certainly. Um. But it, I mean, yeah, it speaks to kind of broader issues of, la of obviously animated labour. And goes back to your point about um, the kind of character design, and, and we've talked previously about how in sound animated features, and particularly Disney in the nineties. Animators work on characters rather than computer animated films work. Animators work on shots yes. rather than allocated characters. And so the point about a character designer working closely with the design of uh, Aladdin or Jasmine or yeah. Jafar or the Sultan and, and making those iconographic um, uh, decisions ultimately, uh, if they are the reference point for this live action, quote unquote, live action, which version, they obviously are, which they obviously are, then that does raise questions, particularly when you're remaking a, a, a cell animated feature film that has animators who work specifically on characters, there is something quite kind of problematic about. And then the Sonic example, yeah, the issue of labour and how they're going to have to give them a bit of dental work in order to, to make that character and res you know, respond to the, the criticisms. It was interesting watching what happened with, with Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, obviously, on on Twitter, we create our own social media bubbles, and uh, and and I've, obviously, I've got a fair few animators on my on my timeline, uh, and animation fans. So I had a day of people recreating Sonic the Hedgehog on their on their own on their own versions. I mean, I've no idea how many man hours were lost in the animation world that day when people were redrawing Sonic the Hedgehog and posting it on Twitter, and people just basically complaining about the film. And then you had the turnaround where the director said, "We are going to." remake uh, the animation in this film we are going to change Sonic the Hedgehog and then you had the, the a backlash from even that where people saying well hang on you've got 
you know, less than a year before this film is released, are you expecting all your animators to go through the pain of having to reanimate every shot in this film because you made terrible design design decisions? Mm. So hang on, hang on, Twitter. Do you want this Sonic the Hedgehog movie or not? That, what, you know? Do you know what? That's really interesting. Um, in the we've talked a bit about sort of how how the public perception of animation labour is, and yeah. like it's really interesting on that because. There's this classic thing as are animators sort of technicians or are they creators, right? And obviously the answer is they're a little bit of both. But there was a, but how the, the public doesn't seem very easy. You tend to have to be one or the other. So that's a really interesting almost get out of jail free card for the animation department in that movie, right? On that the first bit of the story, they're the idiots that created the bad, or, or the director. The director is the idiot that told the animator to to do this yeah. so the animators don't get the blame in any way shape or form for the design of this horrible creature that no one likes yeah. and then the second hand they don't get the blame for the having to redesign it I'm not sort of trying to stick up for evil corporate uh, you know Hollywood studios isn't it but it's interesting who who is the creator in this relationship right you know what, what, is, in, what is interesting uh, alongside that is the fact that Twitter has now become a a testing yeah. ground for, for these films so directors yeah. producers they have this audience, this audience that can instant feedback for free, mm-hmm. rather than getting people into cinemas and surveying them afterwards. They've yeah. got this. This they, they can show the audience what do you think and get all this feedback, and it's changing the way we're making films. I guess the problem with it is that it's all very public, isn't it? From the student's perspective, it like you know we all know that everyone hated Sonic the Hedgehog. Was if mm. you did a test screening and you found that out, you could perhaps keep that under wraps back in the day. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, will it change the way films are made going forward? Will yeah. it? Will, will there be an additional layer of of this kind of social media surveying? Uh, in kind of analytics from, sounds like the yeah. sounds like the best way to make art via Twitter. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> if, if people say you know that it's a film made by committee, yeah, that's a pretty big committee. Yeah. Twitter, yeah. it's a big, pretty big digital camel. Sounds like, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, we've probably rabbited on a little bit too much here, but 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 it's always lo- lovely to chat about all things. Uh, uh, Twitter and Aladdin and remakes and CGI and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Steve, uh, for those perhaps of listeners who don't know Squiggly, and, and I, I can't imagine there are many because it's such a great um, network and, and resource out there. Oh, do you mind just give, giving the, um, our listeners a bit of a two cents as to who you guys are and where they might be able to find you if they wanted to hear more or read more? Yeah, so um, Twitter is uh, it's an online animation magazine. It's uh, run by myself, uh, Ben Mitchell uh, and Aaron Wood. We, uh, we've been running it uh, for a fair few years now, and we also produce uh, podcasts. I must uh, say Ben uh, produces uh, uh, and edits the podcast um, and, and does a, a tremendous job of, of trimming all my all my nonsense. No pressure for you guys yeah. uh, there. He also... Uh, Your nonsense will be unfiltered, I'm afraid. Oh, no. We do numerous podcasts, and, and Ben does a, a, a music podcast, uh, animation music podcast with uh, was Wesley Allard. Uh, and uh, uh, Love, Lust and Libido uh, podcast uh, um, with uh, Laura Beth Cowley. And so uh, we cover a few areas uh, with the podcast, but the website itself is news reviews, interviews uh, mm-hmm. from, from the world uh, of animation. Uh, so if you fancy having a little look, mm-hmm. it's uh, squiggly.com. We didn't come up with a name, I must say that. We, we inherited the name, but it's S-K-W-I-G-L-Y if uh, people are uh, interested in spelling. 
Absolutely, yeah, no, it's, it's great. As I said, like, I some really, yeah. really, some really interesting interviews um, from animators, and you really get into the, the nitty gritty. I was say the kind of the creative like side, I think, and the creative process, the, the the interviews with the with kind of animators, and and their and just an insight into their decisions. I think is always a fun thing, as well as the technical side of how texture works, how lighting and color works. I think was something that cropped up in your last in your last podcast. So uh, yeah, if you get a chance, um, listeners, uh, Squiggly, the online animation magazine. Um, and you're on Facebook, you're on Twitter, we are, and you're, yeah. you're Instagram. Oh, yeah, you're wow, everywhere. We're, we're not on Instagram. Should yeah. we, we should perhaps have an off air meeting where we should sure. be on Instagram. Yeah. We're Let's not quite that, in the 21st century no, now, no. but great. catch us on Reddit, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if, if I may also plug Manchester yes, Animation Festival as please well. Please do, yeah. yeah uh, that's it. No, <laughs> you're the director uh, of that, uh, right? Uh, yes, yeah. So um, uh, I'm the uh, director of Manchester Animation Festival. It's the UK's largest dedicated animation festival. Uh, I run that with uh, Jen Hall uh, and uh, uh, Bill Lawrence and we've got our uh, fifth edition uh, this November at home in Manchester and we'll be opening up a call for entry uh, for, for films rather uh, soon. Terrific. Okay. And I'm also doing, as if I'm not busy enough, uh, I'm also doing a uh, symposium in November at the Waterside uh, on animation archives which is yes. my, uh, my sort of uh, area. Oh, so that's uh, Materials in Motion uh, Manchester Meetup. Um, there's details of that on uh, materialsinmotion.nl uh, if anyone's interested. That sounds great. Uh, the arch- we, we've been archives in Disney would be a really uh, fascinating <laughs> thing to talk about in terms yeah. of the politics of that. Um, okay, well, thanks, Steve, so much for coming yes, on the podcast. You. It's been great to talk to you um, and Jasper Aladdin and have a lovely chance to revisit it. Um, we'll see you next time, ladies and gentlemen. But of course, you can find us on fantasy-animation.org uh, and on Twitter, fan and in research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Oh, I come from a land, from a faraway place where the caravan camels roam. Where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense It's barbaric, but hey, it's home When the wind's from the east and the sun's from the west And the sand in the glass is right Come on down, stop on by, hop a carpet and fly To another Arabian night Arabian